If you want to make an audiobook, go to thetalkingbook.org. That's thetalkingbook.org. Check out these amazing writers, narrators, indie publishers. Come to Asheville. We record books in a booth. Here's the show. Hi, everyone. My name is Chris Hartram. Welcome to the Talking Book Podcast. What's new with everyone? I hope you're all doing great. Uh, we're fine here. What have I done? Recently, I read a book by Yukio Mishima called The Temple of Dawn, which blew my mind apart. Uh, what else? We're approaching the last days of summertime. It moved so fast. I can't believe it. The heat, the pool, the lack of structure, the parties, the kids being around. You know, it's been the best, but also I'm excited for a return to normal. I'm excited for the kids to be back in school so I can work more, a little more structure, a little more sleep. Um, But I wish the fading summer well, you know. Today I have a reading from a new collection that just came out by Drew Buxton. Drew Buxton is a writer and social worker from Texas. His debut short story collection, So Much Heart, was just released by Within X Books in July. His work has been featured in Joyland, The Drift, Electric Literature, Witchcraft, and Vice, among other publications. You can find him at drewbuxton.com. This book, So Much Heart, is absurd, grimy, brutal, tender. So Much Heart is full of schemes, addiction, dead bodies, intrusive thoughts, but also all through it runs a deep uh, thread of deep compassion, and uh, you're not going to forget it. Oliver Zarandi, author of Soft Fruit in the Sun, has this to say about the collection. Buxton's stories read like that shot in Lynch's Blue Velvet, where we push past the green grass of Norman Rockwell Americana and see the rotten, cruel underbelly of things. Corpses, recess, cockfights in Vegas, these stories feel like cinema, funny, unnerving, and gothic. The stories feel like blood relations to Donald Ray Pollock, Amelia Gray, or Stephen King. Anyway, sit back, pop a top, and enjoy this reading from Drew Buxton, So Much Heart. This is the opening of a story called Telecom Gets Loose. The walkway to the back entrance was narrow, with security guards at the partitions. I sprinted and shielded my face as the protesters threw rocks and called me a piece of shit. A bottle shattered at my feet. Rotten hell, Bo, one of them yelled. They recognized me and everyone else who worked at SeaWorld Tulsa. They'd been camped out outside the park for a month already, since the Blackfish documentary came out. I unlocked the door and ducked inside and wiped the dust and beer off as best I could. The main entrance was closed off, so everyone came through the back, even the visitors, and they got shit thrown at them too. I walked down the stairs to the hallway with the thick glass walls of the tank. If you stood there, it wasn't long before the orca tilicum would swim by and you'd tense up and stop breathing. The tank here was a lot smaller than the one in Orlando. Aaron Larson came down the hall. I said, what's up? But he just walked past me in his wetsuit like I wasn't there. He had a chance of going to the Olympics for swimming and was a huge douchebag. The only trainers left were cocky and felt invincible. Aaron thought he could outswim the animals. 
I climbed the three flight of stairs to the top of Shamu Stadium and unlocked the roll-up door of the ice cream shop. Most people had quit, so I had to do I had to work solo. Mary would say I could get a shitty job anywhere. Why did it have to be at SeaWorld? But that was my point. It was the best ice cream serving job in the world. I got to see Tilly every day. Blackfish had turned Mary against the place too. I wiped the counter down and started the snow cone and soft serve machines. The park didn't open for another five minutes. I went back out to the concourse and wiped down the glass of the scuba suit display. It was from the 30s, and the helmet was made of brass. It came with the original Aqualung. It was from when one of the first deep dives made by man or something. I imagined going under with that thing on, trusting it with your life. It was like how the first people in space just had to trust that their spacesuits would hold up. People never stopped at the display. They just wanted to see Tillicum. I walked to the back row of seats. Tilly was on the surface doing laps, ready for his first show of the day. When Blackfish came out, animal rights groups went nuts, and the feds ordered SeaWorld to stop breeding orcas. I think they moved Tilly here, hoping people would forget about him. We were so happy because we'd never had an orca before. SeaWorld didn't want to get rid of him because his sperm was too valuable. He made the biggest, most athletic whales. The documentary said that killer whales are really smart and hate being in captivity. Signs around the park said the SeaWorld orcas were healthier and happier than wild ones. I didn't know what to believe. It was July and hot out and people flooded in and bought ice cream and plastic orca bowls. A trainer got on the megaphone and started doing his spiel for the crowd. He said his name was Gary and I didn't recognize him. Must have been his first show. I gave the last kid in line his snow cone and went out to watch. Gary stood on the concrete shore trying to get a, a clap going, but the crowd wasn't having it. Tilly swam around the tank and waved with one of his huge flippers. He came back to Gary and Gary tossed some fish into his mouth. Gary rode on Tilly's back and they both waved. The music picked up and they went under. Tilly launched him 15 feet into the air and he made a perfect dive back in but the crowd still gave them nothing. They just fanned themselves with their cardboard orcas on a stick. Tilly shrieked at them. He was getting frustrated. He didn't swim back over to pick Gary up like he should have, and my stomach tightened. Gary headed back to the shore to reset. Tilly's fin dipped under the surface, and a second later he had Gary by the foot. He dragged him along the edge of the tank, showing him to the crowd. He was condemning them. It was like he was saying, isn't this what you wanted? Are you happy now? He took him under for 20 seconds or so, then let go. Everyone stood out of their seats to watch, and people from the back rows ran down the steps to stand by the glass. Just before Gary would get to the nearest wall, Tilly grabbed him again and take him back under. He did this over and over, holding Gary down a little longer each time until he drowned. He could be so cruel sometimes. The park closed at 8 p.m. and Mary picked me up in the F-150. When we got home, she put blackfish on in the den and we started fixing tacos. She liked to have it on all the time in the background. I told her how Tilly did it again and she said the trainers deserved whatever happened to them. It's like when people get gored in the running of the bulls, she said. It was all just sad to me for everybody. The trainers didn't know any better. Where else could kids get a chance to see an orca in real life? We started arguing about it again, but she got mad so fast. We spread out on the sectional in the den to eat, and it was a, at the part where 
Tilly is a baby and gets torn from his mother off the coast of Iceland, and the wild killer whales stay with their parents for life. At 10 p.m., I asked if we could watch the news, and she shrugged. I turned it, and there was Ashley Barnes, the main field reporter for NBC Tulsa. She was wearing a tight button-up, and her hair was in curls. She was gorgeous. She was standing on the shore of the river and pointing at the 23rd Street Bridge. It was about a half mile from our little house. Ashley wrapped up and sent it back to the studio, and they played a video from a cop's dash cam. It showed an Audi A6 doing some crazy speed through downtown. When it got to the bridge, it slowed down like the driver was giving up, but then it crawled over the short curb and through the rail and fell off the red, the edge into the river. It was a big drop and the cop in the car said, oh my Lord. They said the car sank, that the driver had drowned. A picture of a girl popped up on the screen with her name underneath. Cassie Wilkins, 23 years old, they said. Oh shit, I said. Me and Mary looked at each other. I'd known Cassie since elementary school. She dropped out junior year and bought that Audi with her own money. I'd been buying from her since she started selling awful weed in her Adderall prescription in seventh grade. She's dead, Mary said. What'd she do that for? I said, what the fuck? She used to come by the house with the weed. Sometimes she'd come inside and smoke a bowl and shoot the shit with me. I hadn't heard much from her in the last few years since she started messing with bigger amounts. I never told Mary, but I think she knew. Cassie was the first person I had sex with. Are you okay, Mary said. That's my buddy, I said. I wasn't asleep around 5 a.m. when someone tapped on our front door. Mary was a deep sleeper and didn't move. I laid still and felt scared, but the person wouldn't go away and kept tapping. I thought about waking Mary up, but didn't want to annoy her. I got out of bed and crept to the door. I looked through the peephole and saw the top of a head. It was a short person, and I felt less afraid. I opened the door, and she said, Let me in, and looked over her shoulder, back at the street. I was looking at a damn ghost. I'd forgotten how small Cassie was, the tiny boss. I stepped back to let her in. She was wearing sweatpants and a dirty white tank top. She was sunburned bad with a big gash on her forehead. I just stared at her, and she sat down on the couch. The TV said you died, I said. She smiled. I did, but now I'm back. She acted like we just talked the other day. It'd been two years at least. Oh my God, I'm so glad you're alive, I said. I'm dying of thirst, Bo, she said, and I went and got her water. She rubbed the gash on her forehead and said her head smacked the steering wheel when she hit the water. Oh my God, I said, and asked if she needed ice, but she said she was fine. She'd slid out of the car window before it sank and hid under the bridge until the cop left. She just poked her mouth above the surface to breathe. That's crazy, I said. I would have died for sure. Cops are lazy, she said. I don't think he looked around. She found a spot to hide on the bank up river. The cop came back later with the news crews and Casey stayed hidden on the shore all day. Mary woke up while I was digging in her dresser for clothes. I told her what was going on. This is a crime, she said. It's called aiding and abetting. Aren't you happy she's alive, I said. Plus, they think she's dead. They're not going to be looking for her. I gave Cassie some clothes and my green towel. I told her she should she could crash for the, a night or two. She stretched out on the couch and closed her eyes. Mary found the video of Cassie going off the bridge on the NBC Tulsa YouTube channel. We sat up in bed and watched it over and over. She really should be dead, Mary said. Yeah, seriously, she should have been knocked out by the impact.
Well, she's lucky she hit her forehead, Mary said. It's the hardest part of the head. I wondered how she knew that. She knew everything. We wondered why she did it and figured she had a bunch of coke in the car or something. It's kind of genius when you think about it, I said. She avoided a felony in years in prison. The cops would never bother fishing the car out. They were too broke and stretched thin. Okay, people, that was Drew Buxton reading from his new collection, So Much Heart. You can get it now everywhere books are sold. I'm going to leave links to the show notes. Thank you so much, Drew, for reaching out, for reading for the podcast. Dave Burr, for editing this show. My wife, for being so pretty. And you, the listener. You guys and gals are the nicest people uh, who support the talking book. So nice to listen and uh, record books with us. And, you know, we love books and we love recording them here in Asheville, North Carolina. We're honored to be recording and producing books for bookshop.org, the Jewish Braille Institute, North Atlantic, uh, so many great independent organizations that give a damn, so many fantastic authors and narrators who make this all work. Anyway, my name is Chris Hartram. Hit me up at thetalkingbook.org or I'll see you next time. Love you. Like a bishop who has forsaken sympathy Chasing sister squares I was lit before I Door was passing over, and the window. Was